Good Monday evening to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you have had a good start to your week, and I'm glad to be back on the air. It seems like it's been a while since I was last on the air, Um, but then again, I don't think it was too terribly long ago that I was with you all. But nonetheless, it's great to be back on the air. Well, we are now going to be talking about um, even more uh, powerful information with regards to uh, Michael Schumacher's The Mighty Fitz, The Sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald. But ever since um, we talked about uh, from the first time she she sank until um, this point in the um, discussions we've had, it's all been uh, powerful. But as we come upon new information, it seems like what we're learning now is even more powerful than, say, what happened from the previous podcast. Nonetheless, the sinking of the Fitzgerald is a um, tragic uh, loss, not just for the Great Lakes uh, shipping industry, but for the families who are impacted, the communities as a whole. And we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight. We're also going to talk about how uh, Captain Bernie Cooper, the Arthur M. Anderson, had um, dealt with so much grief over the Fitzgerald sinking that he probably never really made a full recovery in terms of ever being able to let go of it 100%. But if I tell too much, then what's the point in even having the discussion um, right now at this time? So anyways... Let's get the ball rolling, and here we are, ready to go. Did the news spread quickly throughout the Great Lakes area regarding the Edmund Fitzgerald's disappearance? The answer is an obvious yes. Shipping communities, let's pay very careful attention here, shipping communities were an entirely close-knit group of people. Their livelihoods were dependent upon the materials they produced and the ships that hauled them. So, for example, if you live in Minnesota, uh, ore, or should I say iron ore, uh, with a conversion into taconite pellets, you are shipping all that uh, taconite, rather I should say, is being shipped from various locations in Minnesota to um, cities like Cleveland, uh, Ohio, Gary, Indiana, Chicago, Illinois, Detroit, Michigan, uh, places where... Um, businesses are heavily dependent upon the taconite to um, to convert into steel. And obviously both the Fitzgerald and the Arthur M. Anderson were both carrying um, huge loads of taconite. The Fitzgerald obviously was bound for Detroit, Michigan. The uh, Arthur M. Anderson was bound for Gary, Indiana. But uh, the workers in this profession were seen in everyday settings, and everyone knew one another. An accident at the plant to a loss of a ship in a storm could bring grief to a town that lasted for some time. This isn't, um, how do, we all know the famous TV show, Cheers, where they said you want to go where everyone knows your name and they're always glad you came. Well, that sounds nice when wanting to go to a bar but when we're talking about a matter of of life and death, and in this case death, I think the thought of everyone 
we'll always be glad to know that you came. Well, that's an automatic given in this case. They're already glad that you came. Not just, this isn't leisure. This is a matter of, um, of personal sorrow, personal tragedy, suffering. This is where people um, are supposed to uh, be at their best. And that is to not only rep just represent themselves, but to also be there for the loss of loved for the loss of those who have lost a loved one out at uh, sea. Now, was the news in terms of waiting a painstaking um, mission for the families of the twenty nine men aboard the Fitzgerald? Well, the answer is yes. The longer the wait, the more uncertainty that surrounded which led to the news that would sadly change the lives of 29 families forever. Of course, as history has shown, it's not just the Fitzgerald on the Great Lakes. Uh, families' lives were changed forever when the Carl Bradley sunk in 1958, as well as when the Edward... Uh, J. Morrell uh, sank in 1966, along with several other Great Lakes um, vessels, whether it was from the infamous storm of 1913 to the uh, storm of 1905. No matter how big or small these tragedies have occurred on, throughout the Great Lakes, they have, um, they have changed countless people's lives forever, not just individuals, but for families as a whole. So, where is a, where will the uh, primary, it won't just be one primary gathering for loss of life. Uh, there will be gatherings in Toledo, Ohio, in large part because the Fitzgerald made multiple voyages in and out of Toledo. That's why she was given the nickname the Toledo Express. There will be um, mornings at churches, uh, around the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. There will be uh, mornings probably in uh, Minnesota uh, because the Fitzgerald often um, what he often um, visited uh, Silver Bay, Minnesota when uh, picking up cargo as well as delivering. So no matter where the Fitzgerald has traveled up and down the Great Lakes, she has um, she made she impacted a lot of people's lives all for the right reasons. But there is one uh, church in Detroit, Michigan, that is definitely worth pointing out. And the name of this church is the Mariner's Church. Well, what is unique about the Mariner's Church in Detroit, Michigan? Well, there are a lot of uh, unique reasons for why this church is so unique. The church itself has had been a haven for sailors and their families since 1849. You know, what's interesting about the year 1849 is that that's the same year that the uh, California Gold Rush began. But this church has, has been a haven for sailors and their families since that time. It had been built from funds provided in the will of a, of a woman named Julia Ann Anderson, who was the daughter of an importer slash exporter, as well as the widow of the commander of the fleet of Detroit. And what I find interesting about Julia Ann Anderson in terms of her um, religious de denomination, well, for one, she's a Protestant, but she was an Anglican, or what we would refer to in modern-day times as an Episcopalian. 
but she stated specifically in this in her will that the church itself be called the Mariners Church of Detroit in large part because it needed to be a church that must be welcoming to people of all faiths. In other words, no matter, regardless of what religious faith a man had or held for that matter, not just in his life, but being out of the sea, his faith, his individual faith was, had the same level of equality or, or not so much equality, but of importance in the same manner as the rest of the crew aboard the ship. So it's fair to say in the case of the Fitzgerald that there were, that there were men who might have been of Catholic faith and then there were men of various Protestant faiths. There had to be a church that could cater to men from all ranks of life or all walks of life, I should say, who sacrificed their lives out at sea. And when tragedy struck, regardless of their faith, the communities had to come together. If, you know, think about it. It's one thing to, if you lost your loved one and he was a, a Baptist or an Episcopalian, sure, you could have a, a funeral service at a, at a Baptist or Episcopal church, but when we're talking about multiple people's lives being lost, you need to have a church that can bring people together regardless of, the, of their faith. And what a fitting tribute to have this Mariner's Church in Detroit that has been doing this, that had, has, had been doing this for years even before 1975 when the Fitzgerald sank. And what's even more interesting about this church is that um, is that the inside of the church, one can see the uh, maritime significance. In other words, the maritime roots were prevalent everywhere from ships depicted on stained glass windows to the paintings and model ships displayed throughout the building. And I think it's fair to say that Detroit, it's in um, eastern Michigan, uh, not far from Toledo, Ohio, where the Fitzgerald made numerous um, stops. The Fitzgerald herself also made stops into Detroit, but Detroit is right on Lake Erie, and, it's, uh, and it borders uh, Sarnia, Ontario. So the Mariner's Church of Detroit really is a place where the working class not only came to worship, but to mourn in the wake of disaster on the lakes. It really was seen as a place where not just individuals could come to seek solace or any form of comfort, but, you know, a large group of people in general. And I think it's fair to say that this church is, is so significant because this church could be open at any time because um, when you're out on the waters of the Great Lakes, especially in November, November brings a lot of uncertainty to those who are sacrificing so much to ensure that um, people's goods are delivered safely, but also that this church will always have its doors open to those who
who are coming to mourn not just the loss of their loved one, but for an entire crew who lost their lives, in this case to Fitzgerald. Here's a bonus question that we should, uh, it shouldn't come as a surprise, but, let, but I'm going to ask it. Listen very carefully. How many times did the church bell at the Mariner's Church ring in the aftermath of the Fitzgerald sinking? The answer is 29. Why 29? Because that was the total number of men whose lives were lost aboard the Fitzgerald. All 29 of those men who died, their lives did mean something. Whether it was Ernest McSorley, or I should say Captain Ernest McSorley, who was 62 years old, to some of the youngest men aboard who were at the age of 22, one in particular who was studying um, to become a certified mechanical engineer. His life meant something. So the bottom line is, it's one thing to ring a bell once, but to ring it 29 times, that has even more significance. And history has probably shown that with other well-known shipwrecks along the Great Lakes, that the bell, the church's bell rang multiple times. It, there were probably instances where the bell might have rang 30 or 30, at least 30 times. So it's not just a couple of people who die, it's everyone who passed away whose life mattered at sea. Did the loss of the Edmund Fitzgerald haunt Arthur M. Anderson's captain, Bernie Cooper? Absolutely. Captain Cooper would constantly replay the events of November 9th to, to the 10th on a regular basis. The events from those two days never left his mind. He was unable to come to grips over the fact that the Fitzgerald herself didn't make it through the storm. He would he constantly hear or replay the sound of Captain Ernest McSorley's voice with regards to discussing the weather to the courses, or should I say routes, that each ship would take to get to their final destination. The greater, or I should say the more that Cooper himself replayed these events in his mind, the more convinced he was that the Fitzgerald suffered a fatal injury prior to Captain McSorley's contact with him. Well, think about it. Captain Bernie uh, Cooper has been in, in this uh, profession for almost 40 years. So I could see how over a 40-year span, with all the knowledge you would have of the Great Lakes waters, regardless of which lake you're on, and knowing all the key points, like the Six Fathom Shoal, which, which I'll mention again here in a moment, because I know I've mentioned it from a previous podcast, but knowing that the Six Fathom Shoal had been home to um, a fair number of uh, ships that were lost at sea, when you become familiar with, with stuff like that, in the case for Captain Bernie Cooper, he knows just how, how uh, powerful the inevitable can be to a ship regardless of its size. Now, on November 11th, the day after the Fitzgerald sank, there's, there is a search and rescue mission going on from what I mentioned in the previous night's podcast. 
But it was on this day, November 11th of 75, that the Arthur Anderson left the search and rescue mission of the Fitzgerald and moved towards the Sioux Locks and Sioux St. Marie. It was there that Bernie Cooper um, talked to his employer by phone, U.S. Steel. He had a four-way conversation with three top U.S. Steel officials. However, the conversation got sidetracked, and it became um, one that was heavily focused on the Six Fathom Shoal in Caribou Island. Captain Cooper was quoted as saying the following, He went in close to the island, Cooper declared, and I am positive in my own mind. We had him on radar. We never had him visually, but we had him on radar all that time. And I am positive he went over the Six Fathom Shoal. These are power. This is a powerful. Well, I wouldn't say this is just a power. Not a power. So much a powerful individual statement, but what I just described in quotes or in quotation rather, I, I should say, is powerful. Through, um, or should I say, it's powerful in many ways. But the irony to it is that while Captain Cooper. Yes, he was very concerned about the Fitzgerald's well-being. He obviously went above and beyond and did everything right by sticking his neck out to ensure that Captain McSorley and his crew could make it into Whitefish Point as safe as possible, given just how horrible the weather conditions were. But sometimes what we say, if we're not careful, regardless of the matter, can backfire on us, even when we don't mean for it to happen. And in this case, what I described just a second ago, per what was uh, mentioned in quotes, would come back and get Captain Cooper. He unfortunately broke a cardinal rule, or what, uh, of course, when, the, when I mean by a cardinal rule is a sacred rule, a fundamental rule. A captain didn't a cap it was one thing for a captain to say something in private about what he uh, thought was right or wasn't right about someone else's decision from another ship but a captain was not supposed to openly question another captain's motives or actions it's one thing to believe something it's one thing to uh, have a conviction about something. If you want to share that in private, you can. But the problem is, is that this was an actual phone call. And even in 1975, phone calls were recorded. Maybe the technology wasn't as sophisticated back then like it is today to uh, bring up um, recorded phone calls, but it was recorded back in 1975. The problem and this is something all of us have to be reminded of. I know even I myself can have been guilty of it. The most important thing, though, is for all of us to learn from this. And, it, and it's this famous saying, don't always say everything that's on your mind about something. And in this case, Bernie Cooper made an un unintentional mistake. But unfortunately, it was just one that, um, that did backfire on him. Yes, it was one thing to believe in something about what happened, given that Cooper was convinced that uh, Captain McSorley did go over the Six Fathom Shoal. 
But at the same time, he probably said too much about it. Now, in 1975, the way news was accessed 45 years ago obviously is not the same. Is it doesn't? It obviously pales in comparison to how we obtain news today in a 24/7 world where breaking news is obtained at any given time of day or night. But did the news media pick up on the Fitzgerald story right away? The answer is yes. Newspapers ranging from the New York Times to the Washington Post, Chicago Tribune to the Milwaukee Journal all posted front-page stories about the Fitzgerald's disappearance. News reporters went about filing reports ranging from ship's history to November storms on the Great Lakes. Now, here's the difference from 1975 news reporting compared to to today's (laughs) world. Number one, in 1975, you did not have multiple, or should I say, mass media outlets like there are today. You only had three news stations to turn to in 75. CBS, NBC, ABC. You didn't have MSNBC. You didn't have Hardball. There was no Fox News. Uh, those are just a few uh, handful of um, outside um, news uh, stations news stations one can turn to today. Um, The media didn't always get its hands on everything right away in 1975 compared to today. Now, I should point out that, believe it or not, cell phones were, the first cell phones came about in 1972. Of course, they were the size of a brick, or what we would call the brick cordless phones. And the reason I mention this is because While cell phones have been around for almost 50 years, the first cell phones did not allow people to access the news. You didn't have texting, not like what you have today. So basically, you couldn't... The only way you could get a breaking news alert was from one of the three major news stations in 1975. In today's world, you can get a breaking news alert at any given time of day, regardless of hour. In some, in some ways, is that bad? No, not, necess- not necessarily. But at the same time, depending on what the breaking news is, is in today's world, uh, it may not always be for the better. In other words, in 1975, the media, had, the media had time on its side to get its facts straight or to get everything processed in a proper manner before just saying whatever news reporters wanted to say that was on their mind. In other words, and set back in 1975 and for a number of years, news reporters weren't entertaining. They were reporting the facts that were given to them, but they weren't on the air for 10 hours straight debating X, Y, and Z. Now, I know I could go on and on about that, but it's just important to be reminded of, of the evolution of news reporting, especially when it comes to dealing with a tragedy like this one. 
But what were the two big theories behind the Fitzgerald's demise in the days following her sinking? Theory number one is what is what is referred to as the two sisters um, approach. This is where the ship's bow and stern were lifted by water from two waves running close together. As I mentioned from a previous podcast, these two waves had to have been at least 30 to 35 feet high. And due to the sheer force of these waves, they were very close together that that in return, given their sheer force, it made the ship sag until it split due to a lack of support from within the middle. The Fitzgerald theory number two is that the Fitzgerald had lost one or more hatch covers in the storm, which led to the water flooding into open hatches, causing the loss of buoyancy. Now, if I had been a news reporter in 1975... Which of these two theories would I have gone with in the days following her sinking? I would say number two. Because hatch covers, for one, for one they are essential. They, these covers are, are properly securing the cargo from below to prevent any kind of flooding that would penetrate the inside. And given how big the waves were that, um, that caused such ferocious destruction of the ship, yes, the hatch covers would have been the first to have been impacted. And once they were impacted, the whole inside of the middle would have been destroyed in a matter of seconds. So, therefore, I would have been inclined to have gone with theory number two if I was a news reporter back in 1975. Did it take very long for the Fitzgerald's wreckage to be found? And this will have to be, I will have to mention more of this in another podcast, but but I will share some 101 information about it. The answer is no. It didn't take very long for the Fitzgerald's wreckage to be found. On November 14th, uh, four days after the Fitzgerald sank, a Navy Orion aircraft began search for the sunken vessel using a magnetic anomaly detection unit designed to pick up large underwater objects. This plane covered about a thousand square miles of Lake Superior. The plane itself spotted oil slick on the water roughly 17 miles from Whitefish Bay. Well, it turns out that the Fitzgerald really was about... She really only needed 17 more miles before she got to... before she was to have landed at her final destination being none other than Whitefish Bay. So therefore, this oil slick more than likely was from the Fitzgerald herself. Then you have what's called the Woodrush, which was a ship that was equipped with the side-scan sonar technology, which was effective in locating sunken ships in the deep waters of the oceans. Now, of course, oceans in, great, in the Great Lakes are um, two different bodies of water. But on the other hand, though, despite the technological advances that both the Woodrush had as well as the um, Navy Orion aircraft, neither of these, um, 
investigations, rather, I should say. They were very short investigations. Neither one of them had any luck in making a 100% confirmation that the wreckage 530 feet below superior surface was, in fact, the Fitzgeralds. So what I do know is that um, the board um, that's going to, who's going to be doing um, their inquiry hearing did make a decision that come the spring of 1976, being around March or in, at the beginning of April, to do uh, what would be a, um, an underwater dive mission to um, the bottom of Lake Superior, that is at 530 feet below the surface. But that will have to be mentioned in another podcast. Now, nearly a week after the Fitzgerald sank, around on November 18th of 1975, the Marine Board of Investigation convenes in Cleveland, Ohio. Were there many hurdles that the board itself would have to face regarding the wreck of the Edmund, regarding the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald? Uh, the answer is yes. First off, there are no survivors. Secondly, there are no eyewitnesses to the sinking. Third, there are no accurate logs of the ship's final journey. While there are a minimal number of recorded radio-slash-telephone transmissions between the Arthur Anderson and the Coast Guard in the aftermath of the Fitzgerald's disappearance, it still isn't going to be enough physical concrete uh, evidence to go by as to what really might have uh, caused the Fitzgerald to sink. And we also know that there are no photographs nor videos of the wreckage. The only witnesses we have are, or really that are available, are the men aboard the Anderson's pilot house. And the pilot house is the largest um, deck on top of a ship. The pilot house is where you can make um, make out uh, waves that are coming in. Um, basically, you can see what's in front of you. Not just what's in front of you, but it's also where uh, meetings would be held to discuss uh, key nautical um, maneuvers or just you know anything that's essential to a sh- for a ship and her crew's well-being. But um, the witnesses that were at, in the pilot house of the Arthur M. Anderson not only just those men, but what kind of limited contact there was between them and the Fitzgerald during the final hours really are the closest thing to credible witnesses. And besides the truth to the Fitzgerald's sinking, what else was at stake? Oh, well, um, insurance claims, civil suits to other legal um, actions. Nothing is being left uh, to chance here. Within a week of the Fitzgerald sinking, families of two victims had filed lawsuits. The Coast Guard's already under fire due to its inefficient search and rescue operation, especially given the fact that the Coast Guard itself started their search and rescue uh, mission three hours after the Fitzgerald sank. 
I think it's fair to say that the hearings are going to be very complicated throughout this inquiry. What issues or topics behind the Fitzgerald sinking are, going, are more than likely going to dominate the inquiry? Well, I found about uh, five, um, five uh, topics. And what I'm going to share with you all is just going to be the 101 basis per each of these topics. But more than likely, they're going to come up in some of the next uh, podcast sessions. Number one, this question here, question number one is this. Was the, was the Edmund Fitzgerald a strong ship in good repair? Evidence of structural failure surrounding Fitzgerald's hull to its recent inspections made board members question the ship's long-term viability. So in 1974, or I should say the 74-75 shipping season, the ship had um, suffered uh, some very minor damage to its hull, and while there was damage, the matter was um, fixed. It might be safe to say it was probably what we would think of as like a patch on, on, on a certain um, section of a major um, interstate, like, you know, like the equivalent of, um, of a pothole that covers a patch or, or a patch that would cover a pothole in a road. Maybe that's the kind of work that uh, took place um, on the ship's hull. But the bottom line is, is that there had been a few other um, instances where the ship herself in the early 70s had, um, had uh, run into uh, some trouble. So basically, even for a small amount of uh, structural failure or structural uh, concern, that will um, be um, the first red flag that the, um, that the board, or should I say the Marine Board, will have to take into consideration. Question number two, was the Fitzgerald loaded properly? Cargo holds were often seen as a ship's weakest point. And if, as I mentioned early on, when I first began talking about the sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald, more often than not, ships sank, most likely because the cargo was not properly loaded within the middle of a ship. If too much cargo had been uh, loaded onto one um, compartment over the others, then there was a very good likelihood that the ship could bend, or what's called hogging, that is the bending of one side of the ship or, or both sides, meaning the bow and the stern, to where the ship herself, or the ship itself for that matter, doesn't become even. Cargo must be evenly distributed um, in order for a ship to um, be able to easily navigate along the waters of the Great Lakes. So the board's going to have to determine whether the loading process might have been a factor in the ship's demise. Hogging, that is, during the loading, could have possibly led to serious stress on the hull. So in other words, the Edmund Fitzgerald was known to... Uh, take over 26,000 tons of cargo being taconite. And if any amount of taconite was loaded improperly, then that would have impacted the rest of the cargo. 
So this is something that uh, can't be ignored. Question three. Did recent changes in winter load lines create a hazard in late season storms? Well, it turns out that there had been three recent changes made to, with regards to minimal draft requirements, which allowed large-sized freighters like the Fitzgerald to carry bigger-sized cargoes in the late season, where violent storms were more prevalent on the Great Lakes. So it is possible that, okay, if you are... If a ship is going over its um, threshold, you know, the Fitzgerald could carry up to about 26,000 tons of cargo, but there were many times where she carried almost 30,000 and didn't have any trouble. But given that in this case, if there was more cargo than the maximum threshold would normally allot, and given that it was late season, and late season being November, storms are very common. The gales of November is always um, going to be up at the top. It is very likely that with the ripe, when the conditions turned ripe, warm air and cold air colliding, it is very possible that that uh, that what I just described a moment ago could have doomed the ship. Question number four, was the Fitzgerald's watertight integrity jeopardized by faulty hatch covers? If so, the board has to find out as much as possible about the hatch covers themselves and the procedures for fastening them down. You know, it's one thing to have one faulty hatch cover, but if you have multiple faulty, if you have more than one faulty hatch cover on your ship, that does pose a pro that that can pose a problem. It's one thing to um, to uh, repair it, but if you haven't repaired the if you haven't repaired a hatch cover that is uh, faulty over time, then the greater the likelihood that that hatch cover itself can experience um, internal uh, issues at any moment's notice to where once it becomes exposed, water will rush in and other hatch covers could give way or have the potential to give way, meaning that they can no longer um, hold their own ground. Lastly, question number five, was the Fitzgerald equipped with adequate safety and life-saving equipment? In other words, when the Fitzgerald's lifeboats and life rafts were recovered, based off of what the Arthur M. Anderson saw and what uh, Coast Guard vessels saw as well, it became evident that nobody had made an attempt to use them. Well, for one, lifeboats were scattered. The life rafts, or the lifeboats, I should say the lifeboats were were damaged. Life rafts, I mean, just by the way they presented themselves, it's very evident that the Fitzgerald herself sank so quickly that there just was not time for an attempt 
to abandon the ship and not a single body was found in a life preserver or floating on a life raft. That should tell us right away just how quick this, not just how, so much how quick the storm itself was, but how quickly the waves, being these 30 to 35 foot waves that more than likely occurred, how quickly they damaged the ship from the pilot house on down to the middle to where the ship, um, the ship's watertight, um, what do you call it, hatch covers were literally just blown to pieces. And everything just disintegrated in a matter of minutes to where nobody had time to even put on a life jacket, didn't even have time to just get ready to abandon ship. Well, folks, these are the these are the questions, as I just mentioned a moment ago, that are going to be explored um, heavily as we um, move into further podcast sessions. And we certainly do hope, though, that with this investigation that the Marine Board will be conducting, we certainly hope it's a fair investigation. We certainly hope that nobody runs the risk of losing their job. But questions do have to be answered. And while, yes, the Edmund Fitzgerald was a safe ship, yes, the Fitzgerald broke numerous records, she even broke her own records, her own records. But sadly, we still have a tragedy at sea. We have 29 men whose lives were lost. And of course, some people are going to ask themselves, they're going to ask out in the open, why were they going out there? They had no business being out there on those waters, especially in November. Well, there are risks in life, and there are, and there are those who are willing to, to take those risks, even if it means putting your life on the line. That's sometimes, that, that is sometimes what has to be done. It may not be the most popular thing to do. But if those 29 men weren't willing to go out there one more time before season's end, who was going to do it? It's not like that steel mill place in Gary, Indiana can just wait till the following year for a shipment of taconite pellets. There, have, there were many instances throughout the history of Great Lakes shipping where people, or not just people, but ships made it safely to their final destination in November. But there were, unfortunately, many instances where ships didn't make it to their destination and and it did result in a loss of life because of a bad storm. Sadly, it happened with the Fitzgerald. Well, folks, we've covered a lot of ground tonight, and I look forward to another podcast session here soon. Uh, thank you again for listening, and I have uh, thoroughly enjoyed uh, sharing what I enjoy most in terms of uh, not just history, but what interests me history-wise, and I'm very thankful to have a good, loyal base. So to all of my loyal 101 podcast listeners out there, continue to listen to what I have to say, not just what I have to say, but what I have to offer and share. And if you know of others out there who enjoy history, have them come and listen to my, to my podcasts because you never know. 
there could be future podcasters out there as well. And tell them to come to Anchor. It's free. The opportunities are limitless. And you never know what's in store. All for the right reasons. Thank you once again. And I look forward to being back on the air again here soon. Good night.